Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got an interview show for you today, and uh, we're going to be talking with Doug Kramer, who's from Cloudflare, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about distributed denial of service attacks or DDoS attacks. I know that sounds technical, but basically it's when you flood a particular website or a web service with a whole bunch of requests in, in an effort to basically bring it down to make it unavailable. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before in other, other shows, but today we're going to talk about it in a little bit different light. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, freedom of uh, speech, freedom of expression, um, journalism, and and certain other maybe at-risk sites uh, who are doing controversial things, but good things. Uh, and they may not have the budget to buy some super fancy service to protect themselves from this kind of a stuff. But there's a new project from Cloudflare called Galileo uh, that we're going to talk to Doug about uh, that is aiming to change that. So without further ado, let's uh, talk to Doug. And with us today is Doug Kramer. Doug is uh, general counsel of Cloudflare, where he's responsible for managing managing several teams, including legal, policy, trust, and safety. Uh, in this role, Doug helps address the broad range of issues that touch the company's operations around the world. Doug, welcome. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Gary. Uh, we're going to talk about a few things today. Uh, Cloudflare uh, has got a really interesting product uh, that we're going to be discussing, uh, but we need to lay a little groundwork first. I know we've talked about this on the show before, but some of these technical topics can kind of fade from memory. So, uh, you know, Cloudflare has been around for about, I think, eight years now, uh, and it's probably the world leader in protecting against what we call uh, distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks. So since that's kind of the central point where we're talking about today, let's, let's start with the basic obvious question. Explain to the audience and kind of a high-level view. What is a distributed denial of service attack, a DDoS attack? How does it work? Just high to high level. So in, in, in the most basic level, a DDoS attack is someone who either is in possession of a very large uh, computing system or can hijack one. This is part of the problem with Internet of Things uh, devices that they can be easily hijacked potentially. If they can throw together a, a whole lot of data that can send a whole lot of Internet requests at a target, uh, they can just, you know, for lack of a better term, clog up those pipes and and, short, and, and and cause the Internet site to shut down because it's getting more queries, more requests than it's built to handle. Uh, and it just really is a blunt instrument, probably the most blunt of the cybersecurity risks, just sort of knock it offline. Um, so Cloudflare, through our operations and our design, works to identify those sorts of attacks because we broadcast internet responses from an edge network that has more than uh, about 120 different sites around the world, we generally defeat those sorts of attacks before they ever get off the ground. Gotcha. And we've and we talked about botnets before, which and, and the, the insecurity, the general insecurity of the Internet of Things. And uh, just to remind the audience that there's there like the Mirai botnet last year and some of the other ones we've seen there, you've got all these little cheap uh, read, you know, insecure uh, IoT devices out there that are easily compromised. Unfortunately, they're connected to the internet, which means they're exposed to the bad guys. Uh, and through various means, these bad guys take these things over. And at some point, I guess they they decide that they want to, con you know, call up the army to to pummel some to pummel some website. Yeah, they just it's, it's a big you know death ray, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> they just point at websites they don't like uh, and try to take it down. There is certainly a James Bond, Austin Powers sort of. <laughs> um, you know, version of that, but it, and and that's why when when you think about the the structure to, you know, go after these, you look at, you know, it, it's a little bit about the way that we work. Instead of just having a binary relationship between a website user who goes to the website host of the site that they want to access for a back and forth, um, when you're 
you have a website that's on Cloudflare, those queries go to the closest of these 120 points of presence, as we call them, around the world. And there are a number of benefits to that. One is that it's generally a quicker response, a more efficient response, things like that. But there's certainly that gatekeeping function uh, that says, uh, you know, is this request something that looks legitimate to us? Uh, do we have concerns about the pattern we're seeing here? And if we do, then we can shut it down right then and there. If you don't have that sort of diffuse network, then the, the death ray, for lack of a better term, can, can really just hit its target. With us, that death ray that someone tries to pull together would, you know, query and hit 120 different locations. So by its nature, it sort of, you know, put that over a, a significant denominator that makes it significantly less uh, deadly. Um, and and that's, that's part of the magic of how this works. And, you know, you mentioned the Mirai botnet. The, the, the reality is that we have not seen wide-scale sort of success of DDoS attacks on, on that uh, nature, but, but we shouldn't be lulled into complacency because those attacks are ongoing and are out there. And actually, you know, I know John Graham Cumming from Cloudflare has previously been a, a guest on your podcast. He recently released a blog post just last week sort of showing how uh, repeated and, and growing these DDoS attacks can really be. So it's, it's something we're going to have to keep dealing with for, uh, for, uh, for a while. Yeah, there's the you know the whole coast, the whole IoT market is just absolutely exploding, and it's it's you know there's already billions of devices out there, and it's just going to get worse. And unfortunately, a lot of these because of the cost cutting, are, they just tend not to be secure. And you know, someday we'll have to fix yeah. that. But for the meantime, yeah, we've got a bunch of ready conscripts out there for these botnets. So just out of curiosity, yeah. how how do they sustain this attack? Like how what like what's a what's a typical length of a DDoS attack? And they keep this up indefinitely? Is it is it it's usually a short period of time kind of a thing? Yeah, generally, we don't find that they're indefinite or sort of sustained in that way. You know, the real magic is, I think, sort of, I shouldn't say magic, it's a, it's a um, you know, sort of negative thing. But the, the, the real uh, power of these can be the, the sort of catching folks off guard or catching them by surprise. You know, once you, you've sort of seen that, uh, that this thing is focused at you, you can take measures, you know, you can go sign up for Cloudflare or, 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 or take other measures to um, protect yourself from this. So if, if they sort of launch the attack and, and you know, it's, it's unsuccessful. It's, it's usually of a, a shorter term, but you might see it cycle back around at, at some point uh, later on. Is, is this something that, you know, like once what's a sustained attack is, is ongoing? Is this something that, uh, you know, you kind of think of the classic, you know, trace the call, keep them on the phone, keep them on the phone, because I want to figure out where it's coming from. You know, as long as this attack is going on, can authorities uh, or perhaps Cloudflare or companies like Cloudflare, can, can they actually, you know, do the do the, the, the intelligence work to figure out where these are coming from and, and, and take action that way? Or is it just a matter of these guys just don't, yeah. don't do it for very long and they, and they, and our Cloudflare comes to the rescue and then they can't do it anymore. You know, it's a bit, you know, in my, in my role as general counsel, you're now getting a bit down in the weeds for them that I think <laughs> I would deal with, but I know it's, you know, we've all seen the movies where they, they try to keep on the phone line for what's, what's the going Hollywood rate, you know, 15 seconds, yeah, you know, right. and you can figure out where with the ransom call. I, I don't know. Um, you know, certainly there are attempts, and we work, you know, with other folks in the cybersecurity community, even outside of Cloudflare, to sort of identify and try to to track these folks down. So I, I do know there's a good amount of that effort uh, that goes on. Exactly how long, and what sort of fingerprints we need to see to do that effectively, I, I, I I'm not going to be much good for you speaking to those specifics. But there certainly is an important role to be played in in trying to figure out where these where these come from, because. You know, part of it is having the infrastructure set up, as I said, that, that, that sort of divides this thing up. And part of it is, is fingerprinting these things so that when we do serve the gatekeeping function 
even if we don't immediately see the volume, if we see that it is coming from, uh, you know, sort of a, has the, the fingerprints of a known bad, bad actor, that's another reason that we might, you know, stop these sorts of requests at the edge. It's, it's called our web application firewall or WAF, where we learn from previous malicious actors, whether or not they're DDoS attackers or not, on the web. And part of the gatekeeping function we serve out at the edge is to, if, if we see someone that either by pattern or by identity um, is someone that we know is a, a problematic uh, actor, we, we save those sorts of requests from getting to the uh, origin host and potentially causing some trouble. Yeah. And and I know attribution of these things is really difficult. And a lot of people I don't think get that is, you know, it's like, well, just trace it back to the origin. And it just doesn't work that way. There's so many different ways to spoof things and, and hide your tracks. It's so hard to do. But given given that, and it's still, I'm sure, important to kind of understand your your enemy. So do you have a sense, even though it is attribution is so difficult, do, what is your sense of like what actors are generally behind these things? What are the typical motivations and, and what, what kind of groups are, are, are known for doing these attacks and what, what are their motivations? You know, it, it really runs the gamut. You will see, um, you know, a, a variety. I mean, it, it's all different reasons that people might launch you know, cyber attacks. Some of, some people are just, um, uh, yeah, anarchist is the wrong word, but, but <laughs> trolls out to sort of make trouble, you know, and, 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 and they do that. Sometimes it's, it's done for strategic reasons. You might have, uh, people that have, uh, you know, enemies, either political enemies or, or you know, state enemies or things like that, that, that may do that. Uh, sometimes there's, there's a, a financial incentive, too. You know, there are, you know, threats that go around all the time that sort of say we have, you know, this sort of uh, uh, DDoS attack at the ready. And unless you, you know, deposit this amount of money or, or do this, we're going to launch it against you. So um, you'll see that there are a, a, a variety of different motivations for this as, as various as, uh, people have for doing any sort of mischief. Is it is it more common that they try to like claim credit? Are they looking for are they, are they looking for notoriety, or is it more likely that they maybe try to frame somebody else, or that they just try to remain anonymous? Again, it's probably the gamut. But what do what do you tend to see? I, I don't know that we see a whole lot of folks out there advertising, um, <laughs> you know, wanting to claim you know responsibility for for DDoS attacks. I think they prefer to. To, to operate in a little bit more anonymity. So we don't, we don't see that too much. Um, the, the exception to that, I think, would be when we do see sort of some of the ransom notes that go out where folks say, you know, listen, we have this sort of capacity, and unless you can stay up, you know, we're going to come after you uh, uh, with this sort of attack. So uh, other than that, I don't know that we have too many folks that are out there advertising um, that they're behind these. Has the character of these attacks, obviously we've been dealing with these probably ever since the internet came out, as, as the character of these, yep. of these attacks, I'm sure the quantity's gone up. Has the quality changed things? Is there a different, have they gone through phases of any sort? Is, is it always pretty much the same kind of things we've already talked about? Is, has there been any shift in, in, in your mind of, on, on how these things work or what or why they've been done? Well, you know, when, when you think about the quality, I mean, there's really, you know, by and large, the main metric here is just the size of the the, the death ray or whatever we're calling the, it. the amount of data you can pull together in points. So size is, is by far the one metric here that matters. And of course we see, you know, as with any sort of, uh, you know, development in, in, in you know, digital space, look, it, those have gone up by orders of magnitude over the years. And, and, you know, we see attacks, what we thought was a big attack even two years ago is, is something that is now you know, quite routine. Um, so, um, um, so we do see that, uh, I do think that they're probably a bit more frequent merely because I think the, the, the table stakes used to be 
that you yourself had to possess the computing power uh, to be able to organize one of these or have direct access to that. And I think that's part of why the Internet of Things was such a particularly uh, a development that was so particularly tied to DDoS attacks, because for the first time, uh, you know, you were really able to, I don't want to say, you know, democratize, something, <laughs> but you were really able to, um, you gave access to that sort of computing power um, to anybody who could go out and hijack those, even if they didn't own um, them themselves. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, and now we're kind of get to the meat of this. The reason that, uh, that I wanted to talk to you guys today is you've got a really interesting project now, um, dealing with a very specific aspect of this. I mean, we kind of think of probably corporations or maybe even government sites that, you know, that might be under attack, uh, by these things or, or, or businesses that for some reason, something was to boycott or doesn't like, but, uh, you're actually focusing now, uh, on, on free speech, uh, groups that, um, are maybe at risk for being suppressed, uh, human rights groups, or maybe even journalism, uh, journalist groups. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that and, and, and the new project you've got called Project Galileo. Sure. So um, Project Galileo is, is based on this idea that, um, you know, sometimes the, the, the folks that become targets of, of these are, are very vulnerable, but, but important voices of, on the Internet. You know, listen, we live in a time right now where there's a whole lot of focus on some bad voices on the Internet. But you just think even within the last month, you know, and, and uh, this isn't you know, quite the sort of website that would be eligible for Project Galileo, but just think about the power and the influence of something like the Me Too movement online, mm-hmm. uh, where people have had the ability to speak to about their own experience online in a way that they really maybe have not been able to do in the real world over the past several decades, right? And then when they have that ability to get their message out, it can be incredibly uh, positive force for good, right? Well, there are a lot of websites online that try to do that. Vulnerable artistic groups, political groups, uh, civil society groups, journalistic groups, um, that because of what they're saying and what they're trying to communicate might be unpopular with certain groups. Um, but because they're also largely nonprofit or independent, they may not have the sophistication or the ability to really have top flight cybersecurity defenses. And so Project Galileo is about working to make sure that as many of those groups as possible have the protections that their important voices stay online, you know, just as powerfully as any other uh, website would be. So it's really giving them our, our sort of top-level services and protections uh, to make sure that they can stay online and do that important work and be, in some cases, one of the few or only resources, specifically for folks living in repressive societies or, or things like that. Fantastic. And, and I'm guessing it's called Project Galileo after the uh, 17th, 17th century astronomer who was uh, ostracized for his heliocentrism. Uh, but he would have yeah. been, <laughs> uh, he could have used your protection back back in the day. Uh, I mean, try to get that message to break through against very powerful voices that might be out to silence you, right? Like that's, that's part of what, what goes on here. And then that's what we're trying to protect. Uh, I'll, I'll pull a quote from the Slate article where I actually talked about this by Dan Gilmore, and, and I love the quote that he pulled uh, from uh, an author and media crit- critic, uh, A. Liebling, said, uh, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. And I thought that was really kind of mm-hmm. telling. And, uh, you know, so into it, with the Internet today, things are much more democratized, as you said, it, it, to be a journalist, to be a blogger, to be. Uh, to get your voice heard is is the internet provides so many opportunities for that today that we just didn't have in the past. So, but of course, coming with that is the opportunities to squelch that speech, um, and that's where you guys step in. Are 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 there other services out there that that are they're doing similar things? 
Well, the one I'm most familiar with, we have colleagues at Google that run Project Shield, which is a similar sort of effort. And we often work uh, in, in coordination with, with them to sort of identify and provide services that, you know, the other one might not be able to or, or, or just sort of coordinate and make sure that we're doing the most good that we ha can. So I, I'm, I am aware of Project Shield at Google because we do work with them. Um, we also then partner uh, with a number of organizations. It's kind of an essential part of the Project LAO structure because we know a whole lot about cybersecurity. Um, we're very interested in helping vulnerable voices, but it's not in our bailiwick to sort of know who those groups are, find those groups, evaluate whether or not they're uh, the folks most in need of protection. Um, so we ourselves will work with um, a number of partners who help us you know, recruit and then sort of approve requests for folks to come in. So groups like Amnesty International or the Anti-Defamation League or the Center for Democracy and, and, and Technology, um, all of these folks, you know, have these sorts of efforts where they're trying to keep these these folks online and will work with us sort of to help uh, support uh, those sorts of things. And you bring up a, a segue perfectly to the next point, and, and that is a big one, and, and that is how do you determine what speech should be protected by programs like this? And, and, and uh, free speech is always something in your textbooks that, that, you know, you always talk about the ACLU defending the KKK and, you know, these classic stories of, of, of how you determine, you know, how, which free speech or which, which journalism, which, uh, which of these voices that you want to protect. Yep. And a lot of times it's, it's not necessarily something that you agree with. So let's dig into that a little bit because I know it's got a kind of a controversial thing. How do you determine, uh, how do people apply? How do you approve uh, a group? Yes. So, you know, and this is, we've been very thoughtful as a company really since the beginning about some of these issues because we know with the, the place that we occupy, um, you know, it might be these questions about content on the internet and, and how you think about that, uh, maybe sort of in the broader press now for the first time in the last year. But it's something that we've been very thoughtful about for a while. So, you know, on, on the one hand, um, when we think about Project Galileo, we don't even want to sort of assert our own, uh, because we don't think we're experts at this. We don't want to assert our own authority as to who we think should be uh, worthy and all of that. So when we started Project Galileo three years ago, um, we immediately sort of signed up a group of these um, partners. And there are some... Um, you know, like Reporters Without Borders from the, the journalistic and then, you know, the Lion Publishers, which are a number of the independent publishers in the U.S. You know, we have sort of those groups represented, some of the free speech and religious groups represented, um, to go to these partners and really say, I, as I sort of said, if you want to bring someone to the table and propose them for participation Project LA, we'll sort of run it by everybody else and make sure there aren't concerns and that's good. Or if we get an independent person that comes in and goes, you know, we have... Uh, this described at the Project Galileo website, which you can get at it's cloudflare.com backslash Galileo. People can just go there and apply. There's an apply button. When we get those in, we will take that and sort of put it out to the group of um, about 20 partners that we have and say, hey, this person has a, a request for sponsorship. Does someone want to, you know, vouch for them or approve them? And if we get folks to approve them and there's really no concern in the other direction that we need to, to have a discussion about, then we sign those folks up and, and give them uh, the additional sort of protection that we offer to, you know, sort of the highest level of our, uh, of our uh, other customers. Um, but it's, it's generally a pretty straightforward uh, process um, that, that has worked pretty well and has kept us from sort of getting in sometimes the, you know, the places where we, we can't claim expertise, which is, you know, determining who might or, or might not be a, a vulnerable voice that, that should stay online. 
is that process transparent? I mean, if, if I if I were to apply, uh, do I get some sort of a in my response? Let's say I was rejected. Do, do I do I, do they help me understand why I might be rejected? Is there maybe something I can do to uh, alter what I'm doing to to become accepted? How, how does that work? Well, there are certain levels of um, you know certain levels of confidentiality that we have to maintain. For example, we don't you know we have about 300 participants in Project Galileo right now. Um, we generally do not publicize them. There are a handful that agreed to let us do case studies talking about their experience being a vulnerable voice. And that, but by and large, we don't talk about who they are. And similarly, I, I think because we don't want to put our partners in a difficult situation, we generally don't get too deep into allowing people to, you know, litigate those sort of decisions. It's not something that's really come up. A lot of them are pretty straightforward and clear. I, I can't recall um, many times where there's been uh, much of a controversy or pushback on that. So it, it's a, that part of the, the process works usually pretty smoothly. So what is the, what is the application process? I can, I can, you know, let's say I'm out there right now and I'm hearing this podcast. I'm thinking, Oh, well, you know, that I, I might want some of that. I might need that protection or yeah. I'm already being harassed. And, you know, maybe this is something I might want to yeah. look into. I can think of at least two scenarios. One being, Hmm, this might be nice. The other being, Oh my God, I'm being DDoSed right now. What do I do? So, so yeah. uh, is the process the same either way? And, you know, is, in other words, is there some way to expedite it if in the case where I'm being slammed? Yeah. Yep. So all, all you do is you go to the website, as I described before, which is cloudflare.com backslash Galileo, and you hit the apply button. It's a very straightforward, you know, give us your organization, your URL, a few other points of contact, and then just a note that describes, you know, any sort of those circumstances you want to explain, either, you know, why you think that you're particularly vulnerable. If you're under an attack, you could probably mention that there. We usually turn those requests around pretty quickly but it might help to note that. I'd also suggest for anybody who's in that circumstance, you know, if you're under an immediate DDoS attack, you should probably just go straight over to Cloudflare and sign up for one of our free plans because that will give you some level of protection immediately that might help you in an emergency. Um, but then also apply to, to Galileo and then once you accept into Galileo that, you know, sort of uh, the services provide become a bit supercharged. Ah, I gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Um, on the website, you had some sp kind of specific criteria that you listed. I think there are three or four of them that kind of, you know, who might apply. Uh, could you just kind of yeah. tick, those, tick those off for me? So generally, we try to focus as much as anything on uh, particularly vulnerable uh, groups that are involved in either artistic, uh, civil society, political, or news gathering. Uh, we, we don't think these are necessarily exclusive categories. And actually, just this week uh, in Washington, we held the first of a couple of meetings we hope to have with our partner organizations to have a conversation about um, how we want to do this. You know, we don't want to be exclusive on the one hand. We also want to make sure we're getting to the exact right audience on the other. So if, if you don't necessarily clearly fall into one of those groups, but you think you're an important voice uh, and you think that you are at risk for reasons that you shouldn't be, by all means, please apply and, and give us some description about that. What we have found over time is that the people that end up getting themselves most out there uh, and, and subject to attack are the independent journalist organizations that are speaking truth against sort of established powers that, that might go after them, uh, different civil society groups. Um, like I, if I could take a minute talking about one of them that actually has a lot of case study is a, yeah, please. Um, an, organization, uh, an organization called Badaya which is uh, based in the Middle East, but is an organization that really speaks to uh, gay, lesbian, and transgendered people who have to struggle with unique challenges in, in that community. And you can imagine that there are powerful social forces in that yeah. part of the world that, 
may not want that resource to be available. And so that's a very powerful example of, of, of doing things like that. And that's the sort of civil society group um, that we find, you know, and then just going back to the Sarawak report, which is sort of the leading independent news organization in Malaysia and has been doing very good work, sort of challenging some of the corruption uh, and, and the, what's been going on in that government. You know, they're a participant from the journalist side because they face um, they're in a risky situation. Again, from the, the civil society point of view, someone like Padaya who runs into that, um, or artistic groups or, or other folks. You know, anybody who's sort of, you know, when you think about who is pushing the norms of a society and therefore might generate enemies who want to push down their voices, their new and unique but very necessary voices, a lot of times it comes in sort of that journalistic, civil society, artistic, and political world. Um, so that, that's when we try to go out and make sure that we're covering the field uh, and working with our partners. That's generally what we have found are the, the, the broadest strokes to, to paint with. Uh, but that does not at all, like I say, mean that uh, if we think someone else is out there and has a vo- valuable voice um, as sort of determined by our partners that, that, that they're comfortable with, that should be staying online and be part of the larger conversation that happens on the Internet, um, then we'd absolutely consider them for Project Galileo. I, I was also remembering, too, I, I know I've, I've, the front door is the, the URL here. You can also get there just going to projectgalileo.org. Um, I'd forgotten about that one as well. Um, being here at Cloudflare, I usually use the door to go through <laughs> cloudflare.com. But for those coming from the outside, it may be easier to go to projectgalileo.org. Yes, and I'll be sure to put uh, those links on the, on the show notes. So I'm glad you brought up a specific instance because I was looking at some of the testimonials. I don't know if you call it testimonials. Some of the some of the you mentioned a few uh, of your customers that were willing to come forward and 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 sing your praises. Uh, and related to the one we just talked about, the one of the ones I found compelling was the Trevor Project. Um, and uh, basically, this group is another LGBT support group, uh, but they actually do like crisis counseling. Like, uh, so in my mind, what the, you know, the, what I'm picturing is this is a life or death issue. Right? This is a group out there that is basically running a hotline for for people in trouble who who need some support right now. And if that site were to go down, that could have some serious consequences. Yeah, I'm sort of sighing on this end, right? Because it's like as you describe it, you're like on the one hand, who in their right mind? <laughs> would think it's a good idea to launch a cyber attack against an organization like this, right? But I think at the same time, we realize that's a bit of the reality out there, that, that people will go after, you know, uh, will go after some of these organizations trying to, to provide needed intervention and support to LGBT, LGBTQ uh, groups. And, and it, it really is, you know, th- that's why, you know, part of the real promise and value of, of, of the internet. And it, it's one of the things that I think is, is being lost in the discourse today around the internet where people seem to be focused on some of the negative things that have been with us. We're not created by the internet, but a bit are sort of existing on the internet. They really forget how the internet has cast light and opportunity and companionship and support uh, in places that have been very dark for all of history. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you look at something like, uh, yeah, like, Project Trevor, that isn't just trying to get to some of those folks who may have never had in their own community, their own physical community, the sort of support they can find in this virtual community, right? And it's trying to get them at their exact moment of crisis. Um, you know, that's a resource that absolutely needs to be there um, and, and, and be supported. So that, that, is, that is just absolute core as to what Project Galileo is, is, is all about, because um, you, you just can't let those resources go down. 
Absolutely. Uh, there's two other ones that I wanted to bring up and get your opinion on because it, it, I wanted to kind of paint a picture of the audience of the different ways this comes into play and, and the different aspects of this. Uh, and one of them, I, uh, and I meant to read a little further, but maybe you can expound on this, is was the Internet Archive. And and uh, for those of uh, the audience that don't know, it's kind of they have this thing called the Wayback Machine where you can go yeah. and view historical websites because websites change all the time. Um, so you can actually yeah. go back and look at a website as it was on a certain day, I guess. Is I, It's been a while since I've been there. But I'm guessing yeah. it, w- w- was were they looking for protections because I guess somebody didn't like the fact that that, that something that they didn't they were embarrassed about was preserved. That, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about the reason for the Wayback Machine, um, and the folks of the Internet Archive are you know based here in town and and, and you know really good friends of ours. Uh, when you think about the whole reason of the Wayback Machine, as much as anything, it is to prevent folks, especially powerful folks, from being able to whitewash history. And, and go in and change you know, the Wikipedia page and change their website and pretend like certain unsavory things have never happened, right? Well, if that's the reason they exist, they're sure as heck going to get attacks from those <laughs> exact folks that are trying to thwart their attempts to you know, do stuff like that. So that, that's you know, with, with why, why it made natural sense for us to work with the Wayback Machine to make sure that not only did they hold people accountable you know, for their history that they might be trying to change or to whitewash in some ways, but that you know, that doesn't do any good if we can't keep it up and, and, and running. So there, those, those folks who have the motivation to change their website are going to go have the same motivation to, to sort of clean up all their tracks. And if part of those tracks exist in the Wayback Machine, that that's going to be a natural progression for them. Yeah, and I know that uh, I know uh, Rachel Maddow brings that up from time to time. She'll go back and find the historical yeah. sites with some interesting, interesting historical things that are no longer there. Um, and in a time when we trying to figure out, you know, what truth is all the time. Yeah. There's, some very powerful, there's some very powerful corrective forces in, in, in our history, and, and the Wayback Machine's great about that. The one other one I wanted to bring up was Election Land, and that was, uh, that yeah. was a group that was working on the 2016 election. Uh, could tell us about what, the, what their story was. Well, Election Land, I mean, this is one that, that we've been working with Election Land for quite some time now, but you now see it... Um, uh, uh, in a lot more places, really these questions about securing absolutely everything about around our elections and the various different ways that uh, different groups and forces may be trying to distort all of that, might be trying to distort, you know, information, maybe trying to uh, influence elections and do all of that. And Election Land was a group of journalists that came together to try and talk about and, and bring light to uh, potential voting problems during the 2016 elections. Um, and you know, bring those up. Well, we've seen, you know, again, the same exact people who are going to be engaged in trying to distort elections and, you know, create those sorts of problems are also going to be very interested in covering their tracks. And election land was created, I think more than almost a thousand journalists were involved in this project to centralize all this information. You know, that's a very big threat to the folks that are trying to sort of covertly and quietly thwart uh, what's going on with, with elections. And so, Again, it's a very natural thing. They exist exactly to bring to light some of the practices uh, that they know some bad people, some bad actors are trying to cover up. And so they not only have to do that, but they need to make sure they have the defenses in place to stay up when those exact same people try to, to take them out as well. So I, I, have there been cases uh, or do you anticipate cases where 
uh, you have you and your and your consortium ha, um, have uh, agreed to protect a website, and a government perhaps comes along and says, "No, we really don't want you protecting them." The one that you know, the one that Americans might come to mind is, "Oh, there's you know a Chinese dissident thing, and you know or North Korean dissidents that have a website that those go- those governments want to shut down." And we'd say, "I don't want that." But what if it was the U.S. government, yeah. right? Has this happened? Is this something you're anticipating? Well, it's something, you know, there, it's difficult for me to, to, to say anything much about that. I mean, A, on the one hand, we generally don't talk about our participants, as I said before, and don't want to go too deep into specifics on any of that. Also, because of the, you know, the attribution issues, as you raised earlier with DDoS attacks, it's hard to know any of this stuff with certainty. I'm not aware that we've ever received, you know, a, a request from anyone, be them a public actor or private actor, for us to take away protection from a Project Galileo um, participant. Um, so I'm not, I'm trying to think, I'm not aware that that's happened. I mean, you can certainly see for the exact reason it exists, yeah. you can see the, the reasons why, but it would also be a fairly tricky um, request for them to make. Yes. Because, um, you know, it's, it, there's a certain admission that's built in there. Uh, yeah, that, 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 so I don't think there's, there's, I, I see your point. It's a very interesting sort of point. I just don't know that our experience we've got we've seen anything like that yet. All right. Well, this has been fascinating, and I think it's very interesting, and it's wonderful work you guys are doing, and and, uh, and I'm really glad you're out there doing it because it needs to be done. And the internet is such a great democratizing force, and uh, obviously, there's we don't agree with all the speech out there, but there's a lot of speech that just needs to be heard and can't be squelched. And so, uh, I really want to uh, give you guys kudos for for stepping up and making sure that some of these things are protected for all of us. Well, you know, listen, that, that's part of our our general philosophy about. You know, transparency and, and the open Internet is like, you know, as you said, we can't control that there are going to be bad voices and bad influences out there. But it's always going to be a good idea to make sure that these sort of vulnerable voices and good speech is out there to counterbalance that. And if nothing else, there's no question. Um, you know, there can be some tricky questions about dealing with that content. Um, but there's no question that, that doing things like Galileo makes all the sense in the world to, to make sure the Internet remains really valuable resource uh, for the folks who, who need to be making those connections and, and themselves are in vulnerable situations. And whenever I talk about situations like this, one last question I'll have for you before we go is I like, I'd like the audience to feel empowered, like they can do something about these things. If they've gotten worked up about this issue, if they've realized this is important, if they want to make a difference, obviously you guys are out there doing it for in this particular case, but can you recommend, are there anything, you know, are there any things that the audience could do either politically or financially that they, uh, that might help some of these causes? Are there any other groups that you, that you, you might want to support? Obviously you're not taking donations. I'm assuming directly since you're a right. for-profit company. Yeah, but. Yeah, we don't, we don't. We're, we're happy to do this, you know, without donations. And I mean, our, our partner organizations, if you go and look at the site, please, you know, continue to, to support them. Um, they're doing the good work on the ground and, and also helping us with Project Galileo. That's always a good idea. You know, listen, take the broad view of the power of the Internet. You don't hear many voices uh, these days talking about what an, incre- you know, a lot of the voices seem to be focused on the corrosive parts mm. of the Internet or some of the bad voices people don't want to hear out there. We've got to be reminded that if, if the Internet stays open um, or, you know, or if the Internet starts to close, you may lose as many of these vulnerable voices as some of the ones that you're trying to attack. And so we've got to remember the way that the Internet is really this incredible force for good and introducing new ideas, most of which are good, uh, that might not be there if the Internet had not grown up in a very open way that it did. And so we've got to make sure that we maintain that. 
Uh, because if it goes to restrictive, censoring, moneyed, powerful voices only get too much control over that rather than the general principle of openness, um, we might slide in the wrong direction. There might be some unintended consequences with some of the folks that we talked about, uh, even though there might be very virtuous ideas in trying to, to grab hold of the Internet and control it in a certain way. So, so keep all of that in mind as, as people have these very important conversations. Excellent. Thank you very much, Doug. Thanks for coming, and it was great talking to you. Really happy to have this conversation. Thanks for the time. Thanks again to Doug Kramer for coming on and talk to us about uh, DDoS attacks and how they affect certain particular uh, websites that we'd like to protect. That was a very informative conversation. That's really good work that they're doing. Uh, I want to definitely give some kudos to these guys for that. And uh, tune in for the regular weekly show coming up. It uh, should be coming out on Mondays uh, with the news of the week and a tip. So stay tuned for that. And uh, as always, don't get caught with the drawbridge down.